just felt very exciting to see this story and like emotional, both for me having gone through the whole arc of things in order to write it, but also just actually seeing the story of like a, of a black, fat, gay man go from like hating himself to loving himself or like accepting himself at least. That arc for me was like extremely moving with this ensemble of other black queer bodies on stage. I find it very moving to watch. I wrote this show also because I never had seen it. That was Michael R. Jackson talking about his play, A Strange Loop. And this is Artworks, the weekly podcast produced by the National Endowment for the Arts. I'm Josephine Reed. If you haven't heard of Michael R. Jackson yet, you will. He is a bold and immensely talented playwright, composer, and lyricist whose play, A Strange Loop, just won the Pulitzer Prize for drama. Michael is the second African-American to win, the first to win for a musical, and the first to win for a musical that hasn't appeared on Broadway. The Pulitzer is one of the many prizes won by Michael R. Jackson since A Strange Loop first hit the stage. Begun as a monologue in 2001, A Strange Loop had its world premiere last year at Playwrights Horizons, a production funded in part by the National Endowment for the Arts. And throughout 2019, it has played to sold-out audiences. The reviewers praised it for its bouncy Broadway beat, its witty lyrics, and its provocative subject. A Strange Loop is a rarity. It's a play as challenging as it is entertaining. And at its center is a black, fat, queer artist trying to create while coping with the often punishing thoughts circling inside his own head. Or, as the Pulitzer jury proclaimed, in rather lofty language, a metaphysical musical that tracks the creative process of an artist transforming issues of identity, race, and sexuality. However you want to linguistically dice it, a strange loop is boisterous, joyous, disturbing, heartbreaking, and innovative. I spoke with Michael R. Jackson recently. Here's our conversation. You know, Michael, honestly, if you were going to write a memoir starting now, I would suggest a title being Awards in the Time of COVID. (laughs) (laughs) You got another one since I asked you if you would be available for an interview. You got the Lambda Literary Award for Drama. Congratulations. Thank you very much. So the New York Drama Critics Circle Award and the Pulitzer for Drama. Talk about a strange loop. How are you processing all this? I mean, it's certainly like bizarre, but it's also been like a huge pick me up during this sort of tumultuous, crazy time in the world. So I'm grateful for it. Can you give me a quick rundown of the show, A Strange Loop? Sure. Um, A Strange Loop is about a Black uh, queer musical theater writer who works as an usher at a Broadway show, who is writing a musical about a Black queer musical theater writer who works as an usher at a Broadway show, who's writing a musical about a Black (laughs) queer musical theater writer who works as an usher at a Broadway show, and sort of cycling through his own um, self-hatred. And where did you come up with this concept of this Russian doll plot? Yeah, it came sort of accidentally slash organically because I had written this sort of thinly veiled personal monologue 
when I was, you know, in my last semester, I think, of college uh, at NYU studying playwriting. And at that time, there was a monologue called Why I Can't Get Work, because I was like, worried about graduating with a playwriting degree and not knowing what I was going to do. So I just started writing this thinly veiled personal monologue about a black gay man who was just wandering around New York, wondering why life was so terrible. And from there, I went to NYU for grad school to study musical theater writing specifically. And I went in as a lyricist. But then toward the end of the first year, I learned how to write lyrics. And a teacher gave us an assignment saying that if you're a lyricist who's never written music or a composer who's never written lyrics, go for it. And so I ended up taking sort of my musical abilities, which I'd had since I was a child. And I wrote a song called Memory Song, which at the time was just a standalone song, but it it ended up being sort of the penultimate song in a strange loop. Mom is napping on the couch and dad cuts the grass while I watch TV all day long. Young and the restless, like one lone black gay boy I knew who chose to turn his back on the Lord. One lone black gay boy I knew who chose to turn his back on the Lord. Dad is drunken on the couch while mom eats a pork chop. Daily bread mill, daily treadmill won't ever stop. One lone black gay boy I knew who chose to turn his back on the Lord. One lone black gay boy I knew who chose to turn his back on the Lord. I was encouraged to continue writing my own music. And just over time, I just began writing more music. And the songs I was writing seemed to speak thematically to the monologue. And so I started trying to put them into there and then just... Long story short, it just evolved very organically over time into a musical called A Strange Loop. I'd like to hear your origin story. So you were musical when you were a kid. Did you study an instrument? Did you sing? Where? How did it manifest itself? So yeah, I started taking piano lessons when I was about eight years old. And I did that all the way through my senior year of high school. I sang in choir at church. I played piano at church for a couple of choirs. I sang in an all-city sort of classical chorus um, when I was uh, from middle school to through high school. So I was always very musically inclined, and I learned how to play piano by ear first, and then I took a couple of years of classical piano. But a lot, like my real chops came from playing at church and just sort of improvising, which is where a lot of my later composition skills sort of developed out of that. Interesting. And were you interested in musicals when you were a kid? My parents were like those kind of parents that were like, we have to keep him involved in something positive so he's not doesn't get involved in a gang or drugs. And so... Oh, they must like, have known my mother. <laughs> right. And so like I was always in like a dance class or like choir or something or Little League or whatever. And so I... I was what I gravitated toward when I was much younger was theater. And so I did the child acting for a brief period, like where I was doing like little children's musicals. Yeah. And I had like an agent for a while. I was in like a commercial, like locally, things like that. And then I sort of decided when I was 13 that I was like too ugly to be a movie, movie star. So I left mm. the business. <laughs> mm. Oh, God. I'm sorry. You know, angsty teenager. Yeah, what can you God. Do? I mean, and <laughs> I think, honestly, 13 is the worst age ever. 
It is. It's horrible. I would not trade it for anything. No, I wouldn't either. Uh Uh-uh. I wouldn't go back there for anything. Right. Anyway, so you transitioned out of performing Mm -hmm. and began writing. Yeah. Although, to be honest with you, I kind of was writing at the same time, too. It's just that, like, I sort of started keeping a journal. Like, I was always keeping a journal, you know, because I, I always felt like I couldn't express myself very well and writing was like the only place where I felt like I could fully just say whatever I wanted and no one would judge me or make fun of me and so I was always journaling and then that just sort of naturally transitioned into like poetry and into short stories because I was also one of those kids writers who like I imitated whatever it was I was reading at the time oh yeah so I started off as like a 10 year old reading like Jackie Collins novels that my cousin gave me and so a lot of the early short stories I wrote were me trying to write like Jackie Collins novels, which is really hilarious to think of like a 10 year old doing that. And so then I just graduated from Jackie Collins to Stephen King and like Dean Koontz. And so then my short stories started turning into me imitating like horror and science fiction. And then I like went to high school and I, I took creative writing and over time I just developed and changed. I read soap operas figured prominently in your early career. Yeah, so before I started even going to school, my mother dropped me off at her aunt's house, my great aunt Ruth, and we would watch soap operas together. But then like as I started school, I would find myself continuing to watch soaps like on summer vacations and on breaks. And then like in high school, I figured I could record them on VCR. So I would record I was recording like three different shows every single day and I would watch them while I was doing my homework. And so by the time I got time to go to college, I decided that I wanted to be a soap opera writer. And so I was, my dream when I came to New York was that I was going to become the head writer for One Life to Live. And so all except one semester of my internships, I did at soap. So I did uh, a semester at All My Children in the production office. I did a semester at ABC Daytime for the network. Um, And then after I graduated from college, I got a job as a marketing consultant where ABC Daytime hired me and like five other white girls from Long Island and Staten Island to watch the then existing ABC soaps and like give them our opinions on it for like 12 weeks. Oh, my God. And then right before I got into grad school, I had applied for a job as an executive assistant at CBS Daytime. And if I had gotten that job, I would not have gone to grad school for musical theater. Isn't it so interesting how crazy life is? It's a roll of the dice. I know. It's like two roads diverge in a yellow wood. You know? Yeah. Oh, my God. So did you have an aha moment when it came to musical theater? Like, okay, this is it. Oh, I think I also forgot to mention that, like, as a kid, my mother used to take me to see a lot of musicals. That was, like, our thing that we would do together. So, like, I remember going to see, she she let me skip school, like, one Friday, and then she and my grandmother and I went to Toronto to see the national tour of Showboat that was running in 1994, the Hal Prince one. Mm -hmm. Um, And we saw that, and we saw Phantom of the Opera on the same weekend. And I remember seeing that showboat and like just being utterly transported by it because there was like a black character in it who was like suffering and who it seemed like I felt empathy for her. And the show, which is like about history and stuff, 
Um, and I didn't have like a deep reading of the show that I would have later, but at the time, just the music and the scope and the size of it just like totally impressed me. And then we went and saw Phantom of the Opera and I was like, I don't understand this show at all. Like I like the music of it. And so I made my mom buy me the cast album to it and I, I enjoyed listening to it. But like the story of Showboat, I just found to be utterly captivating. And so it really set me on a path of loving what musicals could do. And then like not that far after that, my family went to go see um, the musical adaptation of A Raisin in the Sun called Raisin. Oh, yeah. Yes, which is to this day is like in my top five of musicals. It's such a beautiful show. And I hate that not as many people know it. But like the, the songwriting craft is like top drawer and like the singing is just interesting. I bring that up just to say that like the early musicals that I was exposed to were musicals that all were sort of dealing with some sort of social issue or things that weren't just like escapist. Right. And so I grew very much up thinking that musicals could have, they could be really be, a, really be about something. They could have um, teeth. They could have teeth. You're a triple threat. You well, write- I hope I'm not threatening anyone. You write lyrics, book, and music. That's great. Well, if you don't mind, I'd like to talk about a couple of the songs that you wrote, and specifically Mm -hmm. the opening song, Intermission Song, which is a fabulous opening. Thank you. And I'd just like you to tell me the backstory of that and how you came to it and, you know, how it came together. So the show is about a musical theater writer who works in Usher at a Broadway show. His name is Usher. And I also just have to say, just as always, as a, a caveat about people's understanding of the show, I drew from personal experience to write this show, but I do not think of it as autobiographical. I call it self-referential. And I make that distinction just because it's easy to like see the show and just think there's like this sort of one-to-one ratio of events that happen in my life and what happens to Usher. There's certainly a relationship, but like the show is about writing about the self, but that's different from just like my life. That said, I was an usher at a, at a Broadway show. I ushered for The Lion King for four years and for Mary Poppins for one year at the New Amsterdam Theater and a brief stint when I was broke a couple of years later at Aladdin. So I know Disney very well. An intermission song came about because somewhere in the like... in draft, I don't know, 7.5 or something. I used to label all my drafts, draft one, two, three, three and a half, draft four, you know, um, somewhere in, in, my, in, the, in some draft of A Strange Loop, I was ushering at the mezzanine at the New Amsterdam Theater, and uh, we had just opened the doors of the theater so people could come in and start taking their seats. And this old white lady was at the bottom of the mezzanine, uh, and she needed something. And she yells up to one of the ushers with like her hand up, like she's hailing a cab. She goes, Usher, Usher. (laughs) And like, I just clocked that because I was like, she's like calling for one of us, like she's getting a cab. And I just kept that in my mind. And that became the main motif of this song that I didn't know what it was going to be. I just had Usher, Usher. And from there, I think I just started writing a song that was called intermission song about Usher was in the back of the theater and all the Usher, all the sort of heightened patrons were coming up to him and like asking all these questions, judging him and, you know, being disrespectful or whatever. That version of the song existed for years, years and years and years and years. And then 
what ended up happening was that once we found out it was going to production at Playwrights Horizons in association with Page 73, Playwrights Horizons paid for me, Stephen Brackett, my director and my choreographer, Raja Feather Kelly, to go on a little retreat to do some like pre-production work. And before we, we went, I was like just sitting, thinking through the show and rewrites that, that I had to do. And we had identified by that point, the other principal characters in the show were Usher's Thoughts. And they had been singing that, the earlier version of those lyrics for many years. But I just kept thinking like, what is this show about? This show is about what he's thinking and his thoughts. And I had an epiphany that that had to be the actual frame of the show, not this thing about the usher working and the inner workings of the theater or anything like that. Like that was just like a, an environment where he worked, but really the show was in his mind, not in the theater. And so I then did a full scale rewrite where the only thing that was left was how many minutes till the end of intermission. How many minutes till the end of intermission? Is that how the show should open? Should there even be a show? No, it should start with what he's thinking. Which is just a cursor blinking. Cause of all of the directions that the narrative could go. show what it's like to live up here and travel the world in a fat black queer body. How many minutes till the end of It was like him trying to figure out how do I write this show? And that sort of shifted the song which musically did not change except for I wrote a dance break at the request of Raja, the choreographer. But the music all stayed the same, but I did a full-scale lyric rewrite. It is a fabulous introduction to the play. Just It just sets the table beautifully, and it, it, yes. it draws you in. You're there. The line used to be, there used to be a, a, like a little girl character going, I still can't find my American girl place doll. And that changed into big black and queer ass American Broadway show. And like, that was what we were making. We were making a big black and queer ass American Broadway show. And you said when somebody, I think it was the director or somebody who had done an earlier reading of, of the play, Michael, when they mm -hmm. suggested casting it exclusively with queer black people, yeah. you said something, something just completely snapped for you. You yeah. saw it differently. You could see it clearer. Yeah. So what had happened was, so as I had written a monologue for this like black gay male protagonist sort of character, that then shifted. I forgot to mention that like once I started putting the music into it, that shifted into a one man show that I performed one night only in 2006 at a Ars Nova in New York. And then that shifted into a something called A Strange Loop. I worked with this theater company called The Playwrights Realm. And I think this is like around 2009, I guess. The other principal characters didn't have like a formal identity at that time as a group. And so they just were just all these different characters and the actors would play multiple characters, like double and triple and quadruple cast. And at that time, it was like there were white people in it. There were cis women, you know, just anybody who was just a good actor was in it. And I did two readings of that with two different directors. And then both those directors got busy and couldn't work on it anymore. And so I called Stephen up and I said, hey, I want to finally do a reading of this musical with the music because up until that point, I'd only done the book. And so Stephen, who had directed two concerts of mine, so he was very familiar with my music. And he thought, oh, what if we cast this as all Black queer people? And like that just opened up things that were just already naturally in it 
So I just started writing more toward that conceptually, which forced me to have to think about what the identity of the other principal characters were. By the time I got to our reading that we did in 2015, the, the characters were identified as Usher's thoughts. There was like Usher's six Black queer thoughts, you know? Like that those bodies were, that's what they were. Um, and so, and I cast it very specifically for that. The music is vibrant and the lyrics are often quite funny, but it's also a very serious work that's deeply personal about a queer Black man operating in a straight white world. Mm-hmm. But I think also it's not only a straight white world. It's also a world of his Black parents, his conservative Black parents. It's also a world of white supremacist gay world. It's also a world of the theater as gatekeeper for the culture. This body is traveling through so many different universes. It's also a Tyler Perry, you know, Black ancestor world. He's traveling through all of those sort of trying to find himself. Yeah. It's not essentializing. Right. At all, actually. It's very, very specific. And speaking of specificity, another song in the play is Periodically. I just like to remind you periodically that I love you some. If you ever should find you need encouragement, then you call me son. I am your mama, and I've always loved you. Even which when you completely it. floored me when that song makes its turn, which I really did not see coming. Yeah, so Periodically is actually one of the earliest songs in the musical. It's probably, after Memory Song, it's probably like the second song I wrote for the show. I did the one-man show version at Ars Nova, but then... After that, Ars Nova invited me back just to do a concert of my music. And so for that concert, I had been like messing around with the idea of this mother character who just was always calling and leaving voicemails. And so throughout the concert, I would have John Andrew Morrison, who eventually ended up playing the character of the mother and winning a Lucille Ortel award for it. Throughout the concert of just random songs I was doing, I would intersperse it with him doing these voicemails. And then finally, the, those voicemails culminated in this like grand poobah of a voicemail song where Usher's mother is calling him on his birthday to wish him a happy birthday. And then that devolving into this complicated homophobic, but also like deeply loving phone call. Hell is real, sin is burning. Sinners churning in rivers of fire Because of filthy, unholy desire Part of what I wanted to show in that is that, like, that's what it can feel like, is that it can be both your parents can be, like, homophobic, but they also can love you so much at the same time. Mm -hmm. And those two things are not just like disentangled from each other. And, right. the, and the, those two things crashing together can make you feel all kinds of things if you're on the other side of it. And I wanted to see if I could create that experience for the audience of that like dissonance of those two things. Yeah. No, I thought you succeeded incredibly because the, her love was so clear. Right. Um, and that's why that turn was so shocking, but at the same time, that love was still there. Right. 
can you remember the first time you saw the whole play mounted at Playwrights Horizons? Yeah, I mean, it was our first preview was it's not it was actually almost a year ago, like a week ago. And, you know, we had been working really hard. I had been doing rewrites sort of up until and I did rewrites all throughout previews. But even though I had been working on a show for so long, for so many years with Steven and with Raja and with the cast and stuff, I still was tinkering. We got to do that first preview and we could just tell that it was gonna like that it was like resonating with people. And so it just felt very exciting to see this story and like emotional to like watch both for me having gone through the whole arc of things in order to write it, but also just actually seeing the story of like a, of a black, fat, gay man go from like hating himself to loving himself or like accepting himself at least. That arc for me was like extremely moving with this ensemble of other Black queer bodies on stage. I find it very moving to watch. I wrote this show also because I never had seen it. I had seen shows that had Black characters in them, and then I'd see shows that had gay characters in them who were white for the most part. And like, never show the twain meet. Then like the movie Moonlight comes out, and that's like Black and gay characters as well, but it's like Black and gay characters who are, to my understanding, are portrayed by like straight men who have these like incredible bodies like cultural standards that that's what gayness is and i wanted to show something that was no what if you have to both empathize with a really smart and flawed and vulnerable fat black gay man who's going through something like what if that's your protagonist i had never seen that and i wanted to see that did you think about audiences at all when you were writing this well, I did in the sense that I just assumed that it would never be produced because I was ushering at the Lion King and I saw Broadway up close. I saw the audiences. I was flyering for Rock of Ages. I saw the audiences, you know, when I was trying to get people to buy tickets to Rock of Ages. And I was just like, oh, well, I don't do this. So no one will ever see a strange loop, but I'll just keep working on it. And, you know, every once in a while, I'd get a little opportunity to like go to a residency or something and work on it. And so that's why when playwrights, said that they were going to do it, it was like, oh my God, really? You all are really going to do this? And so when it was like, yeah, we're really going to do it, then it was like, oh, well, if they're going to really going to do it, this is my only shot, so I better make it really good. And so that, for me, it was about me and Steven and Raja and the cast and creative team and the crew, like, and, and Players Horizons and Page 73 and my uh, commercial producer, Barbara Whitman. It was all about us doubling down on what the show was on like what made it unique and special and and like and just assuming that because it was so specific that it maybe it might have a universal resonance which i found to my great pleasure it seemed to it did like so many people would come up to me after the shows during the run and say either hey i'm a fat black gay man and this is the first time i've really felt seen anywhere or on the stage and then I'd have like old white ladies from the Upper West Side be like, I'm not a fat black gay man, but this was so moving to me and I empathize and, you know, and I get it. Different people from different walks of life. And that for me made me feel really good because I think that that's what theaters should do anyway. Theaters should invite everyone to give a shit and to empathize and to like have a shared experience and to meet the protagonists uh, and the, of these stories where they are. 
and decide for themselves how they feel. Don't you find it extraordinary? I mean, the great paradox of art is the more specific you are with your story, the more universal it actually is. Yeah, I think that that's like also the beauty of it. At the end of the day, we're all humans. You know, and I think about like a moment like we're in now where there's like more division than ever. What I love about theater is that, yes, you can like actually empathize with other people who are not you. That is what empathy is. You don't, it doesn't have to be like, that's my experience and that's the only thing I understand. It's what it means to be alive. We are all alive people. We all like want to be together. We want, we're social. If you prick me, do I not bleed? You know, all those things. And so I, I think that that's why I love theater, that it can do that. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, art demands empathy. Right. And I also think it has the ability to take you out of your own life and mm -hmm. into another life. But then when you come back to your own life, you're enriched by that. Yeah. And also that's happening for the person next to you as well, while you're sitting there with them. And you both are experiencing this exchange of energy at the same time that's going to the actors on stage and that's feeding them. And then they can then give it back to you. And then you can like give it to each other. Another strange and, loop. Exactly. That's, and that was, and that's a real thing. Like I said that during rehearsals that, the, that like, I want the show, the experience to be a strange loop of exchange of perceptions because a strange loop is literally about perceptions of self. And both, you know, white audience members might go into the show with their arms folded being like, who's that black gay on the stage? Like, what has he got to say? And then they find out, oh, he actually has some things to say that resonate with them as human beings. And then they have to divest themselves of this idea of a hierarchy or superiority. This is a theater is a shared experience. I was going to ask you what you miss the most about live theater, but I think you might have just answered that. That's, I mean, that's what I miss. You know, it's like a charging station. It's like a well. You go to the well and you can drink from the water and like sort of quench your thirst and keep going forward. It can empower people to be stronger in like hard times. I wish we could go to the theater so much right now. And, yeah. and But actually tell stories that are taking risks and are entertaining for sure, because that was another important thing. One of my mission statement is to make works that are as challenging as they are entertaining. Well, I know this is such an uncertain time for the performing arts, but tell us, tell us what's next for the play. So we're scheduled to have an, uh, our DC premiere next year. It was supposed to be this year, but it got pushed back. And I, wait, a shout out to Willie Mammoth, the theater yes, I Willie love. Mammoth and Maria Guayanis, who the artistic director, who was my first director of A Strange Loop. Oh my gosh. Yeah, when she was at the public, she was who I was working with initially. Oh, that's so wonderful. She got, she got like really, so it feels actually really great to come Strange Loop. So many Strange Loops in the show, like, yeah. and in my life, that to be able to come back to come to the Willie Mammoth in DC with her as one of the producers or as the producer. Well, Michael, I look forward to seeing you and A Strange Loop down here in Washington, D.C. when you come. Me too. I can't wait to, to meet you and see you in person. See everyone in person. <laughs> That's playwright, lyricist, composer, and Pulitzer Prize winner, Michael R. Jackson. 
To keep up with Michael, or to find out when a strange loop will go into production at Woolly Mammoth in Washington, D.C., go to his website, thelivingmichaeljackson.com. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Don't forget to subscribe to Artworks wherever you get your podcasts. And please leave us a rating on Apple because it helps people to find us. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Stay safe, stay kind, and thanks for listening.